And welcome to another episode of Focal Point. Today, we are joined with David Schubach, who is the CEO of US Retail Banking at Citigroup. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing great. To kick things off, could you give us an idea of how your time is spent in your current role between sort of perhaps areas like managing the people and financials in the firm and recruiting talent? Sure. So in a role uh, like mine, uh, where I have the privilege of leading uh, the retail bank for City, uh, I'd say a lot of the time is focused with our clients and with our people. And as such, you know, the talent mission is uh, ever so critical. Now, we have a complex operation running across our branches, our mortgage business, our wealth management business, small business, and of course, our operations and controls. And frankly, talent is, in some cases, the most important decision and set of decisions you'll make. And that you are trusting your field generals and, frankly, thousands of people on the ground to be the voices, to be the faces of Citibank to all of our clients. And to that end, talent decisions, while you're not making them every minute, are some of the most critical. Uh, in terms of time spent, I spend probably about a third of my time with my team directly each day, working with them on setting business strategy and ensuring we're delivering on our execution. I spend about a third of time, I'd say, working through clients with a bit more external orientation, try to get a sense of what's out there in market, talking to parties, competitors, and the like to make sure I understand the market, we're adapting uh, to it. And then I spend a third of my time focusing uh, on some of the internal operational issues, controls, improving our experiences, as well as ensuring we run a safe and sound institution serving our communities at large. That's really interesting. So you touched on kind of the number of employees you're sort of overseeing. Over 65,000. Naturally, when you're overseeing so many people, you're not going to have sort of as close of a relationship as if compared to if you're overseeing a team of sort of 10 or sort of a couple hundred employees. If at all, how do you think being a leader and sort of inspiring people in your position changes when you're operating on such a scale? Yeah, so I'm a big believer when it comes to large distributed and frankly, international organizations where you have your staff dispersed, especially in the COVID world where more and more of the staff is not really sitting with you. In fact, today I'm sitting in my makeshift office of one where the only person who really can see me directly outside of a video is my three-year-old daughter, who I can tell you is probably the most difficult person to influence uh, on a day-to-day basis, even though she's right here. I think what it comes down to is is really uh, three things. The first is setting purpose uh, for the team. The reality is you can't be out there and hand-holding that many people each day. Uh, And again, frankly, in today's world, none. So you're really counting on ensuring a clear vision and purpose for people. So they come to work with the instinct of what the end state, what the goal, what the mission, what we're really expecting them to have. And I always think of that in two ways. It's, It's ensuring that there are a set of values and ensuring that people come and provide value to clients. Um, And you need, to be thinking both ways on a day-to-day basis. And if that's not clear to people, what you get is, in many cases, bad results, mixed results, but inconsistency in what product and service is. So I, I start with the most important part is setting that vision and purpose from up top. Second, though, is you've got to drive a lot of influence through the organization, through the right routines, the right rhythms, and the right incentives. Or put differently, you need structural elements to support that vision. And for us, we have, you know, quite a number of routines to ensure that messages, strategies, execution gets passed through the organization all the way from head office down to our branches. Second is ensuring that our teams are incented, motivated to follow the behaviors and the patterns. And to that end, you know, our, our former CEO, Mike Corbett, had a very simple perspective, which I remember tattooed on all of our foreheads, which is you've got to measure what matters and then manage what matters. And to that end, we, you know, we use concepts like scorecards and tools to help facilitate that. 
And so again, we have formal mechanisms. But then third, and again, I don't want to downplay this, is the importance of the informal mechanisms of the spirit of coaching, mentorship, the water cooler, whether it's formal or not today, more informal on Zoom or on phone. Mm. It's the inspiration that's provided through the individual connections. And on that, again, it comes down to building a really solid leadership team because you can't touch thousands of people each day individually. We try through town halls. We do the Zooms. There's, these new technologies are actually quite remarkable in their ability to drive scale uh, communications in ways that we never had before. But my humble belief is that it takes a lot more of a personal connection to get people to really uh, follow that directive. And to that end, it really counts on having the right talent who are able, capable, and passionate about uh, the mission, the service, to be able to connect with that many people distributed on a global basis. Backtracking slightly, sort of fascinated by your story in 2005, you were at McKinsey's a first year associate and within five years, you were named partner, which is very impressive. What do you think kind of enabled you to get to such a stage in your career so quickly? Honestly, a little good luck and the help of a lot of people. Um, you know, when I entered in 2005, I came from a career and background in law. I started in you know, a McKinsey, which is an 80-20 synthesis PowerPoint-oriented world, writing yeah. what felt like legal tomes, and <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I was pretty clueless, but I'll tell you, I had uh, one, one just blessing, which is I had people who looked out for me, and they put me on their shoulders, and they beat me up. They tore me down. They put me through the car wash time and time again, and Every year as I you know, take on new roles and uh, expand responsibilities, I'd go through a pretty similar you know, process where, again, I had, was lucky to have mentors and friends who would you know, coach and ultimately work it through with me. And I can point to, to many over my career at McKinsey and beyond. But wow. I tell you, that's, that's really the single biggest thing is that intrinsically, like, you got to work hard. You got to have a, what I like to call hustle. And you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the world, far from it. Uh, but I am a hard worker and I believe hard work is a virtue and I'm not apologetic or I don't, I don't think that it's anything special, but I believe in the power of hard work, but more than anything, it's, it's the blessing of, uh, you know, having had a, a, a group of supporters and mentors really helped me. And I think that's the biggest differentiator to my career. And as I talk to most people who I've seen grow in their careers, it really ties not to necessarily anything they've done individually, but really to the people who helped make it happen for them. And again, I, I feel blessed to have uh, a career which is really marked by the support other people have given me. And in my role now, I try to pay it forward similarly and create those kinds of opportunities for people who I see as uh, high potential and people who bring a little humility and a lot of hustle to work and ensure we're giving them opportunities to advance their careers too. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Why sort of at McKinsey kind of you sort of made your name somewhat on advising large banks like City on how to remake themselves after, after 2008? And when students sort of hear consultants come into sort of campus recruitment, we all sort of hear of the need to kind of structure problems uh, and be messy. How did you approach such a really colossal task? One step at a time. The, the challenge of coming into you know, the, these types of problems, especially when there isn't a real playbook, is you, you have to take one step at a time and think through the implications of each decision. Back in 2008, as you know, the crisis was unraveling, the reality was everyone was looking at each other and, and hoping there was some silver bullet, you know, uh, magic wand that could be waved and make the problem go away. And of course, with problems of that scale, and certainly back then, which was a global financial crisis, uh, there weren't. 
And you had to start thinking of the logical steps on capital and liquidity and expenses and operations and resilience and, you know, on and on. Each of these steps required not just quick fixes, but really systemic solutions that took time. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the lessons I learned uh, through the crisis were really two in particular. The first, again, is the importance of collaboration and teamwork on more of a, a global and industry basis. Mm -hmm. A lot of the solutions we look back on now, 12 years post-crisis, were really solved not by individual companies, not by individual governments, organizations, but were really um, partnerships, constructive, challenging, often at odds partnerships between groups, countries, companies that ultimately saw their responsibility as bigger than their role or their stakeholder immediately. It was recognizing that we were at a point where we were on the precipice of either building back and recovering from a great crisis or extending and prolonging it. And it's, it's a little easy to get lost when you're sitting at a large bank but, and just think about the immediacy. But you have to realize the amount of people, the impact that you have, it's pretty incredible and humbling that you're reaching decisions and, and people across the world. If you don't make a loan to a company, are they going to be able to ultimately get product out to be able to distribute? If you don't make loans, can people get in their homes? Can they ultimately get cars to be able to go to work and earn a yeah. wage to provide? When you start thinking of the reality of those decisions, it really, you know, it becomes a lot more real. So I think that's the first lesson is better together is a solution in, in industries like banking where the interconnectedness is so high. Then the second lesson, I think, you know, I've learned at least through the crisis is not to be afraid to challenge the older solution to it. Mm -hmm. In 2008 and nine, we were entering a lot of the you know, early stages of a more digitally oriented world. And a lot of the solutions we tried to drive into were around automating processes that were broken, looking at, at areas of risk and control that you know, historically were done by individuals disconnected from business processes. And a lot of the solutions today sound extremely common sense. But back then, we're a little bit of taking the back office and moving it front office, yeah. uh, putting technology to solve systemic solutions that were you know, often not you know, the, the key priorities of large organizations. Today, that is the strategy of, of highly regulated industries. But back then, it was you know, not exactly the, the playbook. So asking questions of how do we make it simpler, smarter, safer, stronger, and then when you do it, ask again and ask again, I think is a really important key for any executive in any business uh, that has a systemic responsibility, certainly by banking. How has COVID-19 has affected the retail banking market? Everyone is staying at home. People are funding large amounts of money that would have otherwise been spent into savings. What have you been sort of seeing now, and I guess over the past few years, while you've been sort of at City in the retail bank? So first and foremost, I have to start with a big shout out to my teams across our branches, across our wealth and mortgage teams, because they are showing up each day while I am sitting comfortably at home and often not allowed to go out and yeah. visit more than a branch. They're out each day providing an essential service to people. And to make that very real, last week in the U.S., stimulus checks were provided across you know thousands and thousands of people, millions of people, and people needed cash. They need to be able to get going. They need to be able to run their lives and have access to things. And if the bank isn't open and if cash isn't available and if ATMs aren't stocked you know, then security isn't provided, things don't happen. And so uh, I start with just a, a humble recognition that uh, as we work through the last year, 
putting the safety of our people and our clients first has been paramount. Ensuring our protocol, social distancing, PPE, all the stuff to just make sure that the world can continue as normal as we can in this COVID-19 climate has been really essential. And I'm really grateful for cities, but also for the entire industry of, of frankly, all people who are first responders and who are essential service providers, providing the front line of the world today, which without it, I'm not sure what we'd be looking like today. So that's first. From a client perspective, it's actually been really remarkable to see, and again, it's a bit of a blessing of humanity that it is an adaptive species. And frankly, you know, with the, the power of intellectualism in some ways has allowed people to adapt their worlds as quickly as we've been able to. And I think back to last March, uh, the speed at which we were able to get our people home on computers, getting you know, video and audio conferencing up, enabling you know, cloud computing to give us scale to handle but now is, you know, 100x, if not more, you know, capacity being required to handle day-to-day operations, you know, pivoting not just the technologies, but the social norms of how we work. It's been just a remarkable feat um, across all industries. And again, something I think we'll look back on for many years with, with pride as how we adapted to a tough environment. And frankly, hopefully, I'd like to say save many lives by doing so more quickly. And then I think from the client perspective, it's also been really interesting to see their behavior shift as well. Thankfully, because of the investments we've made in digital technologies, mobile in particular, to enable banking to be a verb and not just bank be a noun, we've seen a real shift in how people are engaging with banking services across all domains, from buying things online, to managing their money, um, to transferring, to paying, to depositing, all using apps, using uh, web-based tools, and the like, it's really just the speed at which adoption and engagement are both happening has really been breathtaking. And I don't think that that goes back per se. I think, again, there'll be a lot of power to physical branch infrastructure for many years to come. I'm a big believer in the power of humanity and banking. So I don't think this is, you know, for many people who say the branch will die, I, I absolutely disagree. I think the branch will be important. But I do think more and more activity, transactions, uh, will continue to occur using some combination of physical and digital. And mm-hmm. I think that will only accelerate post-COVID. What kind of real estate do you see City going forward looking to have, or do you think it should have in, in the US, given sort of COVID-19 has accelerated these digitalization trends? So, uh, look, I think of it as, as real estate is sort of a, a two-factor. The first is... Um, what do you need the real estate for? And then second, how much of it do you really need? And what you really need the real estate for, in my opinion, is becoming more and more focused on advice, on service, on engagement with clients, and less so, but not none, but less so on transaction volumes. If you look at the transaction volumes across the retail banking industry, they've been coming down in double-digit CAGRs for many years before COVID. And that was, again, with technology enablement, you don't need to go and deposit your check if you could take a picture of it. And you don't need cash as much because you're using plastic or now you're using digital wallets and the like. And so you just don't need to go with as, fre- as much frequency. And with ATM proliferation, you can get cash in many places. So the need for transactional-based banking is diminishing. And there are some segments where that hasn't happened as quickly, in particular, some older communities and some low-medium income communities where cash and essential service becomes more important. And for those, you want to be ready to provide that. But again, even in communities like that, we are seeing a shift, perhaps not at the the speeds as the general population, these quote-unquote millennial groups and whatnot, uh, but we are seeing it happen across segments. And it's been surprising through COVID to see some of the fastest adoption segments 
actually be some of the older communities who frankly had the most exposed to COVID fears early on who needed to adapt. So the need for as much square footage uh, is definitely going to be less across the industry. And we're seeing that. We're seeing consolidation yeah. happen more broadly. Yeah. And so I think what you'll see in the future is not the elimination of the branch, but I think you'll see a bit of a de-densification across markets where you had 30 branches, you may be able to do it with 20 branches. But I would still say the power of the branch to establish relationships, to be a beacon for the brand, mm-hmm. to be a combination of marketing, but also engagement, and then be a place for engagement, experiences, education, community are still going to be more and more important. And I think you'll see branch more banks put more branches in different places where they want to engage in communities and expand outwards into new markets. But I think, again, you'll see a meaningful de-densification of branch networks across certainly the major cities, where I'd say there is a bit of an overbanking from a physical presence perspective. That's very interesting. In the UK, we're seeing new entrants, like, for example, Goldman Sachs with its Marcus Band, Revolut, Monzo, Starling, and I'm sure in the US, the retail banking space is just as competitive. What would you sort of say is the firm's strategy going forward and, and adding on to that? How do you sort of compete and partner with FinTech? So I'd say I look at it in two ways. Uh, the first is, the first, first, you have to think about each of these as a potential competitor. You have to. Again, there's a, a total addressable wallet out there in the market, and a lot of these new fintechs, some of the older fintechs, uh, are bringing, again, a c- combination of value and values uh, to the equation, which is driving them to be able to acquire many new customers. And while many of them have been able to acquire customers, most have not really driven them into primary relationships, which is really the, you know, the, the biggest aspiration, frankly, the goal of any banking relationship is to earn the trust to be their primary bank. But we have to take these seriously. We have to take them seriously, one, because they do have good capabilities and they are acquiring clients at a large scale. And again, their ambition and their capital is increasingly getting broader and broader. But again, I like our competitive positioning and ability to compete against uh, the newer fintechs in particular, where we have a combination of the infrastructure, but also the brand, the history, the values, a combination of the experience, the judgment, uh, and the sense of responsibility that many of them, especially on the lending side, don't have by virtue of their shorter lifespans and having not gone through as many cycles. Um, But uh, we always look at ways where we can partner with fintechs in particular on ways where in ways where they have good capabilities, we could ingest and ultimately combine into our ecosystem. We've announced in the last year, you know, a a partnership with Google, which I wouldn't call a fintech, I'd call them a technology company. But we're again, a combination of, of bank and technology together can compete in creating more of a fintech-oriented solution at scale, which again, is all about providing for our clients value that they either feel or are unable to get through a more traditional source. And I think through a combination of great experience, great client experience, digital-led, smart, but very responsible use of data, which is again, a very big theme Mm. uh, to provide good service. And then again, value to the client, you know, in terms of offering them great, solid product that is reliable will work. Putting those together allows for an exciting future for, again, how banking can be embedded more and more into other activities versus a standalone activity in and of itself. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you've been now at City for around eight years now. What would you say has sort of been the biggest challenge so far? Oh, wow. It's been eight years. That's, that's, that's 
actually pretty incredible to think about. Life goes fast. Yeah. I'd say the toughest challenge, I'd say it's, it's, it's the balance. It's the balance of leading ahead and driving innovation in a highly regulated industry. Yeah, again, especially at City, earning the license each day is about proving the safety and soundness of the institution. And again, a license is a contract. It's an entitlement to do something, but it means you, you do things to earn it. And to that end, ensuring that we run a safe, sound, highly controlled bank that is doing what it says is most important. Because if you don't, that license ultimately is one you ultimately don't earn. And so I'm, I'm very sensitive to, to making sure that the balance is there to uh, meet the high bar that a globally systemic bank like City has to earn each day, mm. while putting more and more of the focus on trying to build for the future and bring out the new products and the new experiences but doing it in a way that, again, meets the high, high bar we set for ourselves in providing responsible financial services. Or put differently, City's mission and value proposition is you know, ultimately to enable growth and, and you know, economic progress. And you know, to do that, again, it relies on, on a foundation of safety and soundness, but we want to use that as a way of ultimately driving a growth agenda. So the two go hand in hand, but getting that balance right is the toughest part in any industry, certainly a highly regulated one. I hope everyone's found it very illuminating. And I'd like to extend David Chubeck a very big thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and stay tuned for more episodes to come. Yeah, thank you. Be well and stay safe.